welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along this morning. So glad you're with us. Um, This morning, I want to try and conclude our time in the book of Isaiah. Um, For those of you who are regular at Gateway, I think it's about 17 or 18 weeks Um, You have been incredibly patient and kind and encouraging as I have um, um, waded my way through this incredible book. And what I want to do this morning is try and wrap up our study. Obviously, I haven't even gone close to finishing all the material. Um, I said it right at the beginning, I wouldn't even try to. Um, I've left large portions of the book out. And even this morning, we're going to pretty much skip over the final 16 chapters with just a very brief glance at their contents. So in trying to pull this study together, what I want to do this morning is kind of give you a bit of a review of what we've covered and then hopefully leave you with some material that if you so desire, you might wish to follow through and and look at. So... As we've looked at the book of Isaiah, one of the things that we noted right at the beginning was that it it divides very neatly into two portions. In some senses, the first uh, 39 chapters are very, very much like the Old Testament. The last chapters are very much like the New Testament, give and take, but but, um, people have made that uh, connection. Um, Between those two blocks between Isaiah 39 and 40 is a chronological gap of something between 150 and 200 years. The first 39 chapters take place in Jerusalem, and between chapter 39 and 40, uh, some traumatic events take place. Jerusalem is overthrown by the Babylonians, as uh, actually Isaiah had prophesied in the earlier portion. Uh, the judgment that had been impending finally falls, and Israel is carried off into exile. Chapter 40 begins at the end of that period, or nearly at the end of that period. Uh, Israel have been in captivity for nearly seven decades, and the last 40 chapters, uh, sorry, from chapter 40 on, the last chapters have to do with this exiled people. Now, within those two broad divisions, chapter 1 to 39 and chapter 40 through 66, there are very clear subdivisions. I suggested to you as we started our study that the first five chapters of Isaiah are kind of a prologue that introduced the whole of uh, Isaiah's thrust and themes. In those initial five chapters, we see a contrast. A contrast is painted for us between Jerusalem as it presently is and Jerusalem as it was intended in the purposes of God to be. It's a contrast between what is actual and what is ideal. And there's a huge gap, a seemingly unbridgeable chasm between what is and what was meant to be. I suggested to you too that Jerusalem is meant to be seen in this book as more than just mortars and bricks, more than just a literal city. That Jerusalem is a picture, a metaphor if you like, of a community of people. The people of God as they intended to be and tragically the people of God as they actually are. So we have this contrast set up. 
we have some insights in what they were supposed to be. Um, Isaiah chapter two, you know, the house of the, the Lord at the top of the mountains with people streaming to it, the law being taught, the people of God, uh, you know, as they are supposed to be. We see it also in Isaiah chapter four, just a little snippet where this is the community as it was meant to be. Unfortunately, the rest of those five chapters deal with what is, what is actual, and what was actual was disastrous. This community were in a disastrous predicament. There was iniquity in the nation, there was insincerity in the temple, there was injustice in the city. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the key question posed by these chapters is how on earth can this actual people ever become this ideal people? The book starts with God taking his community, his people, to court to make some charges against them. These people are idolaters. These people are covenant breakers. This community, his community, is on the verge of imminent judgment. Walter Brueggemann says, Yahweh has a peculiar purpose for Jerusalem, for this community, and will act in severe ways against the city or the community that fails in that purpose. And I've suggested to you through this series that election is a wonderful privilege, but it's an even greater responsibility. Amos chapter three, verse two says, out of all of the families on earth, I picked you. Therefore, because of your special calling, I'm holding you responsible for all your sins. So election is a wonderful privilege, but it, but it has a responsibility that goes with us. So chapter one through five set the scene for understanding where Isaiah is gonna take us. And that's what the prologue of any kind of book actually does. Isaiah six is the prophet's call to ministry. And we saw in that chapter a holy God, a humbled servant, and a hard message. Isaiah was told by God that his preaching would actually harden his listeners. It would make them even worse even more culpable than they presently were. Now, this is hard for, under, for us to understand. I mean, why would God want to harden them? Why, why would he do that? But as we saw, what God was actually doing was giving this people more of what they'd already chosen. Like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, God simply ratified the choice that these people had already made in their heart. Because these people were already steadfastly committed to idolatry, they would find themselves resembling the very thing they revered. That's the way life works. You resemble the thing you revere. These idols that they revered were deaf and dumb. And as we see, Israel had become deaf and dumb. That's how life works. In chapters seven and eight, Ahaz, the king, faced an invasion from a confederation of surrounding nations. Isaiah the prophet comes to him and tries to teach him and instruct him not to look to other nations to get security or to find deliverance. Ahaz kind of feigns religious devotion, but he's already determined in his heart what he's gonna do. And he's decided that Assyria, the nation of Assyria, is actually the answer to the problems that he faced. 
So he enters into an agreement with Assyria, the big dominant power in the north, to come and help him out against the confederate nations that are attacking him round about. But asking Assyria to come in and help is a bit like asking the cat to come in and sort out a dispute between a couple of birds. Only the cat wins. And Ahab's refusal to trust Ahab's unbelief and refusal to trust Yahweh sets Israel and the house of David on a collision course with God's judgment. And in Isaiah 9 and 10, we are introduced to the reality of God's wrath with his people and the reasons for it. It also indicated that the instrument of God's wrath would be, lo and behold, Assyria. Assyria, the very nation that Ahaz looked to for help and deliverance, was about to devour him and his household. Now, in the deepening darkness comes chapters 11 and 12, and they introduce to us, surprisingly, a note of hope. And I suggested to you that as you read the book of Isaiah, one of the things that you'll find is that he regularly juxtaposes judgment and hope. In a section that's largely about judgment, there will nevertheless be notes of hope. And in a section that's largely about hope, you will find nevertheless notes of judgment. Isaiah does this all the time. So he's been painting these incredibly dark pictures, and then in the midst of it, we have chapters 11 and 12, and we're introduced to a messianic hope. We saw a great ruler, we saw a great return, we saw a great rejoicing. And what we see here is kind of an answer in part to the original question, how will this community ever become that community? Because we suddenly realize that if the actual community is ever going to become the ideal community, it's this mysterious figure that is going to be crucial and central in that process. In some ways, the first chapters of Isaiah are are a bit like a series of concentric circles. The first 12 chapters are the inner ring and they deal primarily with Jerusalem and the people of God, the community of God and the desperate strait that they're in. Chapters 13 to 23 is an outer ring and that deals with Israel's immediate neighbors. It consists of a series of prophetic oracles, mostly judgment, against these surrounding hostile nations. So in these chapters, we have oracles about Babylon, Assyria, uh, the Philippines, the Philistines. Um, The Philippines is a great country. If you're a Filipino, don't take offense, okay? Moab, Syria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and Tyre are all spoken to in these prophetic oracles. Outside of that circle, you have chapters 24 to 27. Now, here Isaiah starts talking about the earth. In those chapters, 25 times, the earth is mentioned. These chapters, sometimes called Isaiah's little apocalypse, are, are very, very similar to the book of Revelation. We are introduced in these chapters to two different cities, two distinct communities. Judgment is coming to one of them. It's the unbelieving, wicked city. Now, Isaiah doesn't give it a name, but John in the book of Revelation does supply a name for this city, and he calls it Babylon. 
when you find Babylon mentioned in the book of Isaiah and also in the book of Revelation, it's not necessarily referring to a literal city. It's a metaphorical term for humanity in its unbelief and rebellion against God. It's the community of unbelief. And Isaiah and the book of Revelation talks about the judgment of this community. Then there's another city and salvation is coming to that city. Isaiah calls it Zion. John calls it the New Jerusalem. It also is a community. It's the community of believers, of believing people. And the great challenge for you and I as we read these portions is how do we live in one city in the midst of Babylon and yet be citizens of another city, the believing community? How do you, how do you live in the midst of that tension? How do you choose to be shaped by the right community. And, and I mentioned to you a number of times that actually the book of Daniel is a wonderful illustration of how people who belong in one setting and in one city actually live in and have the power to shape another city. All right, so um, we, 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 we talked about that. I largely skipped over chapters 28 through 39, but I suggested to you that chapters 28 and 33 outline the foolishness of trusting surrounding nations for help and security in the midst of troublesome times, as Ahaz had done. And we talked about the fact that when difficulty comes, where do you turn? What options do you look to for deliverance when darkness comes to your life? So often it's easy, as Ahaz did, to think, you know, well, God helps those who help themselves, and I can see a couple of possibilities that might work here, and I know that they probably don't fit within, you know, within God's ethical sort of demands, but, but temporarily I'm going to go here. And the temptation for us is no less real than it was for Ahaz. In the face of testing, who do you trust? So chapters 28 to 33 outline the foolishness of trusting other nations. Chapters 34 through 39 outline the wisdom of trusting God rather than the nations. And we see here particularly a story of Hezekiah who is now facing an invasion from Assyria. The nation, by the way, that his great-grandfather turned to for help. And I suggested to you that often, as parents or grandparents, the choices we make set up incredible challenges or great blessings for our children and our grandchildren. And it's fascinating that the very place, the piece of ground that Isaiah stood on and challenged Ahaz about his trust in Assyria was the exact same piece of ground that the Assyrian embassy, or rather ambassador, stood on as he hurled insults at Hezekiah and told them about the impending destruction of the city. Those two pieces of exact ground are linked for us to see, that as parents, as grandparents, the choices we make set up great blessing or uh, incredible difficulty for our offspring. You know, our Western individualism thinks, you know, they can, they can make their own choices. They can, they can uh, they're free to do what they like. But biological DNA, and if you like, spiritual DNA says something different. It says that we can be either a blessing or a curse to our generations. So chapters 34 through 39 is the blessing of trusting God. 
At the very end of chapter 39, Hezekiah, having trusted God to deliver him from the Assyrians and seeing God's amazing deliverance, has a visit from some Babylonian uh, emissaries. And he opens up his heart and treasure house to them in a way that the Bible seems to indicate was incredibly unwise. And then the curtain falls. 200 years or at least 150 years go by and suddenly as chapter 40 opens, we find Israel in Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians that had seen Hezekiah's treasure come back and they come back and ransack the city and take those treasures and take the people off off into, into captivity. Isaiah 40 begins after nearly seven decades of captivity and a prophetic note of hope is suddenly sounded into a despairing community. Some of you may have been here. I showed you that little clip from Shawshank Redemption, you know, the movie where uh, Andy Dufresne breaks into the office, locks himself in and puts, um, puts, puts on the, the opera singers and suddenly into this dark, dull uh, demonic place, this incredible note of hope bursts forth and every prisoner turns and they all stop and they all listen. The great question is, what are they going to do when that note of hope stops? Are they simply going to return to sweeping the yard, playing ball, or or will it somehow posture them to listen to the note of hope and think that other things might be possible? A new exodus is being offered to these people. Forgiveness and deliverance is coming to a captive people. How will you respond? Will they trust God where their ancestors refused to? Well, Isaiah chapter 40 verse 27 tells us how they postured themselves. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? These people were cynical. These people were saying, because in the Hebrew, the idea is not just that they said it, but they were continually saying it. They were saying, God has forgotten us. God doesn't care. And if he does care, he's not powerful enough to do anything about this situation. That was their approach. So what God does is he enters into a series of disputations with them, trying to show them that their assessment of this situation is badly skewed. God has not forgotten them. They are in captivity, not by virtue of divine neglect, but by virtue of divine judgment. And Yahweh, the all-powerful creator, is powerful enough to do the things that he says he's going to do. And Isaiah talks about this creator who holds the oceans in the palm of his hands, who can weigh and measure the mountains and before whom all people and all kings are simply dust on the scales. He's well able to do what he's promised. So through these chapters, chapter 41 through 45, there are at least five trial scenes where God takes this people again into the courtroom and tries to convince them to trust him. He challenges the Babylonian idols in whom they are starting to trust to either put up their credentials or shut up. And he says, you do something, do anything. Tell me something about the future. And of course, they can't. They are dead silent. God says, listen, Cyrus is coming. Much to your surprise, Cyrus is going to be the instrument of deliverance who will set you free from Babylonian captivity and allow you to go back to your promised land. Did your idols predict this? No, of course they didn't. 
However, these people love their idols. They trust their idols. They obey their idols. And the prospect of them forsaking their idolatry doesn't look great. And sure enough, by the time we reach Isaiah 48, they are unmoved and unrepentant. And the promise of this new exodus is clearly not going to happen as it was offered. And God says to them at the end of Isaiah 48, had you responded, you could have had prosperity like a river. You could have had offspring like the sand of the seashore. You could have had an enduring name, but now it's off the table. And in Isaiah 49, we see God turning from his corporate servant Israel, the people that he had elected to represent him to the nations has failed terribly. And he now turns from the corporate servant to an individual, to the servant, capital S. He determines to do a new thing. He remains committed to his mission to bless the nations. But that blessing is now not going to flow through Abraham's descendants, with a plural, but his descendant, his one true Israelite, the servant. And we are introduced to the servant from Isaiah 49 through 53 in a series of songs that we looked at and they're called the servant songs. And it's this servant now as an individual who will perfectly embody Israel's identity as the true vine. Remember in Isaiah 5, God paints this picture of a vineyard that he has done everything to make fruitful, and at the end he says, were they fruitful? No, they were not. They brought forth, forth, and the Hebrew says, stink fruit. Everything had been done, they could not and would not bring forth good fruit. This servant will be the true vine. When Jesus stands in John 15 and says, I am the true vine. Most Israelites are connecting this with the history of Israel's calling to be a true vine that would bring forth spiritual fruit. Jesus is now that identity, taking on that identity and, and on that mission. Their mission was to be a light to the nations. When Jesus stands in John chapter 9 and says, I am the true light. Again, Israelites are recognizing that not only is he claiming identity, but he's taking their mission. The servant is now the true Israelite and, and God's purposes are gonna happen through him. So we looked at the servant songs of Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and Isaiah 53 verse 13 through chapter 53. Chapters 54 and 55 are really about the promises of God to those who will now put their trust in God's servant. They have a challenge. And it's summed up in Isaiah 55, verse six, where it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Come, call upon him while he's near, because there will be a time when you won't be able to find him. And as it were, he will not be near. There is a season of this promise of new exodus, of visitation on this people, but it's not an unlimited season. There is a time when God is near and can be found, but that season of offer and opportunity closes. 
The word opportunity comes from a word that has to do with the sea, actually. It has to do with a, a, a vessel that is out in the open sea, has come to the harbor, and needs to go across, as it were, the bar into the harbor, but has to wait for the right opportunity, the right aborto, the right time. And when the tide is at its height, it can go in, but when the tide is gone, you, you're stuck, you're lost. So there's a time of aborto, there's a time of opportunity. William Shakespeare said in Julius Caesar, there's a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads to fortune, omitted all the voyages of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea, we are now afloat. These people were on a full sea and God was saying, it is the time to seek me, it is the time to call, I am near and I can be found, but it's not an unlimited season. Take the oboto, take the opportunity, go across the bar now. You remember Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in his day saying, if you had known, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. There's an opportunity, but it is now gone. And then he outlines the judgment that's coming upon this people. And he finishes in that portion by saying, the judgment is inevitable because you did not know the time of your visitation. The New English Bible says, you didn't know God's moment when it came. The tide rose on such a sea, you were afloat and you didn't take the opportunity. A few short years after Isaiah 48, uh, <coughs> sorry, and into 54, 55, Cyrus comes, as Isaiah had predicted, and issues an edict <coughs> that allows all the Jewish captives who want to, to go. You have freedom to return. You know, the tragedy is most spurned the offer. Most of the Israelites had effectively become Babylonians. They had settled, and a very small handful of Jewish people returned to their homeland. It's said that by Je <coughs> excuse me. It's said by Jesus' time, 85% of all Jewish people lived in the diaspora. They lived outside of the promised land. That diaspora basically started here when people decided they wouldn't go home. They, they rejected the offer. They remained as Babylonians. Now, this remnant that did return, it was very clear to them that the exile wasn't over, even though they were back in their promised land. They understood that the exile was more than geography. The exile had to do with being dominated by foreign powers. They knew that the exile would be over when the new exodus that had been promised actually was fulfilled and they were free of dominating powers. They never shook off the shackles of foreign domination, even though they were back in their land. They knew that they were the tail and not the head. So chapters 56 through 66 have to do with the remnant that have returned to the land. There's probably a chronological gap between chapter 55 and chapter 56 of about 20 years. So as you look at the whole book, uh, there are these geographical and chronological breaks. Chapters 1 to 39 are in Jerusalem. 
at the end of chapter 39, a chronological break of 150 to 200 years, and the next chapters are in Babylon. From chapters 56 to chapter 66, there's a chronological gap there of 20 years, and they are now back in Jerusalem. That, by the way, those chronological gaps and those geographical kind of locations are why many scholars have come up with the idea that Isaiah is written by at least two authors, if not three. So they would say, these scholars, that the first 39 chapters are written by a man they call Isaiah of Jerusalem. Chapters 40 through 55 are written by an unknown person they call Deutero Isaiah, second Isaiah. And some scholars go even further to say that from 56 to 66, with that 20-year gap, are written by a third person, Trito Isaiah, third Isaiah. Now, uh, I, I suggested at the beginning of the book that I didn't necessarily subscribe to that, but it doesn't really matter if you do. It doesn't take away from the fact that this is Scripture. Second Samuel was clearly not written by Samuel. All right, Samuel was dead. It was probably written by people in Samuel's school. And, and, and since it was written in the same kind of style and flow, it became for us Second Samuel. None of us would think anything less of that book by virtue of that fact. And I would suggest to you that if you were to read scholars who say there are three people wrote Isaiah, it doesn't necessarily take away from the fact that it's Scripture. So whatever you decide, and I've gone with one author in my thinking, but other people have suggested two, and as I say, some three, it really doesn't take away from anything. These final chapters from 56 to 66 are written to the returned remnant. And it's very clear as you read these chapters that all is not well. They are facing very bleak times. They are facing poor social conditions. The city's in rubble poor economic prospects, there's conflict within the community, there's opposition from without. And it seems as you read these passages that this people are disillusioned. In Isaiah 59 and verse 9 and 10, they say, therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there's darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are dead men in desolate places. Sounds like you need some antidepressants. They were in a difficult place. They had not experienced the promises made to them in Isaiah 40 through 55. When those, that note of hope came, the new exodus comes, there'll be a road in the wilderness and I'll make, and, and I'll make you prosperous and all these things and they're saying none of this happened. Has God's word failed? What's with prophecy anyway? What they refuse to see and what a lot of people refuse to see is that God's purposes require our willing participation. We are not simply prophetic pawns in God's plan. He has to have some kind of buy-in from you and me. Prophecy paints a picture of what might be if we respond. More often than not, prophecy is an if-then proposition. If you will do this, then I will respond in this way. And the reality is this people had not responded. 
And as a result, the prophetic purposes of God are actually pushed into the future. It's not that it's not gonna happen, it's just not gonna happen to you. You have missed the day of your visitation. The opportunity has come and gone. The tide has risen and you stayed where you were. You did not forsake your sins. It is not that I don't care, because I do. I've got you graven on the palm of my hands. It's not that I'm not powerful, because my arm is not short that it cannot save. But you would not respond, and therefore the tide rose, and fell and you remained in your sin. So the prophetic promise is pushed off into the future. It is not without coincidence that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist breaks on the scene and what does he say? Isaiah 40, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He picks up the prophetic promises that they refuse to pick up and he starts talking about a new exodus, about a new Moses who would come and suddenly Jesus is there. The prophetic promises didn't fail, they just didn't happen because that people wouldn't respond. And suddenly a new generation is offered the same promises. The literary unit that forms chapters 56 through 66 is really, really interesting. And we don't have time to go into it, but I'm gonna give you just now a couple of thoughts that you might like to take away. If you've got a pen and a paper, I'd suggest you write these down or jot them on your phone or whatever, because this, this is a fascinating portion of Scripture. It's written in a Hebrew form called a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is a writing style that uses a unique pattern of repetition for clarification and emphasis. And I was trying to think, how could I explain this? And, and it's, it's a bit like creating a sandwich with, with words, okay? So first of all, you have a piece of bread, Secondly, next step, you have butter. The third step is you add mustard. The fourth and central step is that you add meat. Then what you do is you add more mustard. Then a piece of butter on a piece of bread. And you get this in-out piece of literary structure, kind of like a folk dance, where the steps in to the center are then repeated exactly by the steps out to where you started from. And each step in and out relates to each other. The thought that is the piece of bread is mirrored by the thought that is the piece of bread in the second portion, and so on. So these chapters are written as a chiasm, and I wanna give you this chiasm and give you a few brief comments although I'm gonna leave you largely to, write it, uh, to read it through. So it starts, the chiasm starts off in chapter 56, verses one through eight, where it talks about God's people who are gathered, including faithful outsiders. So God talks about the kind of people that he's gonna gather, and, uh, and he talks about outsiders. So it goes like this. Um, I'm going to read to you a portion. This is from the Message Bible. It says, Make sure that no outsider who now follows God ever has an occasion to say, God put me in second class. I don't really belong. And make sure no physically mutilated person is ever made to think, I'm damaged goods. I don't really belong. So that's the piece of bread. God's people gathered, and this People gathered includes outsiders. When you go right to the end of the chiasm, the very last piece, the other piece of bread, it's uh, Isaiah chapter 66, and it reads like this. 
I know everything they've ever done or thought. I'm going to come over and gather them, everyone, all nations, all language. They'll all come and see my glory. I'll set up a station as a center. I'll send the survivors of judgment all over the world, Spain and Africa, Turkey and Greece, and all the far-off islands that have ever heard of me who know nothing of what I've done or who I am. I'll send them out as missionaries to preach my glory among the nations. They'll return with all of your long-lost brothers and sisters from all over the world. They'll bring them back and offer them as living worship to God. They'll bring them on horses and wagons and carts and mules and camels straight to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says God. They'll present them just as Israelites present their offerings and ceremonial vessels in the temple of God. I'll even make some of them, I'll even take some of them and I'll make them priests and Levites, says God. So here's God saying, the people that you've said are out, I am telling you they are now in. And that's the first part of this closing chiasm. And the closing part of it is the same idea. The second step in, Isaiah chapter 56 verse 9, including chapter 58, contains a series of contrasts between the wicked and God's faithful servants. He starts off and he starts talking about the wicked leaders. And in the midst of all that, he said, the righteous people are taken away. And you think, oh, they're gone. But he says, I'm saving them from the trouble that's coming and this, this, this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. The next step into the chiasm is Isaiah 55 verses one through 14. And it's a series of prayers lamenting God's absence and a confession of sin. The next step is Isaiah 59 verses 15 through 20. And here we see God as the divine warrior acting to bring salvation and judgment. It says, God looked and he couldn't believe what he saw. Not a soul around to correct this awful situation, so he did it himself. He took on the work of salvation, fueled by his own righteousness. He dressed in righteousness and put it on like a suit of armor with salvation on his head like a helmet, put judgment on as an overcoat, threw a cloak of passion across his shoulders, and God, the divine warrior, steps in and acts alone. On the way out, you see exactly the same thing. God, the divine warrior, acting alone. Isaiah 63, it says... Um, I've been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. Angrily, I stopped, stomped the grapes. Raging, I trampled the people. Their blood spurted all over me. All my clothes were soaked with blood. So we see God, the divine warrior, acting in both salvation and judgment. The central part of this chiasm is chapters 60, 61, and 62. And they are incredible chapters. And all of the notes of hope that we have seen through the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 4, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 25, Isaiah 35, all of these wonderful little pictures are suddenly pulled together in these three incredible chapters as we see God finally getting the community, the city, the bride that he's always wanted. When we saw at the beginning actual Jerusalem compared with ideal Jerusalem, now we have ideal Jerusalem. In between, of course, we have the ministry of the servant that made this possible. So in Isaiah 61, we see a city 
in which God will reside and his glory will fill. And that chapter, by the way, is reflected so powerfully in Revelation chapter 21, where we also see a city with people streaming into it, bringing their lives, bringing their gifts. In chapter 61, he will enact jubilee there. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. The favorable time of the Lord. All of the promises that people would be restored to their property, restored to their position, restored to their right place in relationship with one another and God happens in this chapter. As, as in this city, God brings jubilee. In chapter 62, the community will be renamed to bespeak a new and recharacterized relationship. They are a bride. So here we see a city, a community, a bride, all echoed at the end of Revelation. So that's the central part of the chiasm. The, the, when you have a Hebrew chiasm, it's the central part of it where you finally get to dance with your partner, swing around, and then you start your process of moving back out again. That's the guts of what the passage is really all about. Stepping back out, we have exactly the same steps repeated. Isaiah 63, 1-6, God the divine warrior acting to bring salvation and judgment. Prayers and laments about God's absence and a confession of sin in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 65 contains the contrast between the wicked and God's faithful. And finally, Isaiah 66, God's people gathered, including faithful outsiders. So we see this sandwich of God's incredible grace as he will have the community that he has sought by virtue of the ministry of the servant. So that's Isaiah. Let me just very briefly, bullet point, give you some thoughts that you might like to take away. Number one, Yahweh, the God of the nations, it is he that controls the flow of history. Number two, he's the Holy One of Israel. 25 times in the book of Isaiah, we read him being called the Holy One of Israel. A third thought, being God's people is an awesome privilege and an even greater responsibility. We as his people now are called to reflect his image and embrace his mission. By the way, in the first portion of Isaiah, you have Israel, the corporate servant who fails. In the middle portion, you have the servant, the individual who does everything that, Isaiah, that Israel should have done but didn't. From Isaiah 56 on, you have servants mentioned again. As now God takes his mission and once again puts it in the hands of his servants. And you and I are those servants, elected unto mission. An incredible privilege, a great responsibility. We have to understand that election always has to be linked with character, with ethics, in order that that mission be realized. Israel failed to see that and therefore failed. God's heart is and always has been for the nations. Election is not about cozy privilege, but it's for the purpose of mission. We are blessed to be a blessing. God's servant, Jesus, is the only way we can ever be God's faithful people. He comes, he suffered on our behalf so that we can be brought into his presence, be empowered by his spirit, and be his people. And as God's servant, we are called to trust him above all and not look elsewhere for help, for security in uncertain times. Last thought, Yahweh's day, the day of the Lord, a phrase that is mentioned so often through Isaiah, is a day that both has come and is coming. 
Yahweh's day came for that people in imminent judgment, but it's not the fulfillment of that day. That day awaits us, a day where God will be revealed unto salvation and unto judgment. And Isaiah 66, the last verses of Isaiah finish like this, and I'll close as I read them. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me. This is revelation. The new heavens and the new earth. So will your name and descendants endure from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. So there's salvation, new heavens and new earth. And then it says, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them and will not die. The fire that burns them and will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. And that's how the book finishes. What a note. The, Isaiah has sometimes been called the fifth gospel. In some ways, Isaiah could be called the miniature Bible. And it finishes with a new heavens and a new earth, salvation offered to a people for those who refuse it and miss that opportunity, judgment awaits. It is an incredibly wonderful book and yet an incredibly sobering book. It has much to say to people like you and I and really it's worth reading. So I commend it to you. I'm glad you've stuck with me through it. Let's stand. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.